Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today's psalm is the final psalm of Asaph, number 83. A song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the nation of Israel be remembered no more, for they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebel and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia and the inhabitants of Tyre, Ashur also has joined them, and they are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Salah. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin in the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmanna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O my God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze. So may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Fill their faces with shame, that they may seek your name, O Yahweh. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Unlike some of the psalms that we see that can be emotionally in several different places and covering both good and bad, this psalm really only has one thing going on. Asaph is acknowledging that people are are bringing themselves against God's people to destroy them, and he prays that the Lord would thwart their plans and destroy them instead. So God, fight for your people. That's the theme of this psalm, which does make one of our questions to ask our kids, I mean, really a straightforward one. What enemies do we have that we ask God to fight for us? And really, the answer you're going for isn't some mean child or or whoever, your boss. The answer is sin, death, and the devil, the things that seek to destroy us, to take us out of God's hand. They don't have the power to do so. Not on their own, at least, as they can tempt us. Even death tempts us. It tempts us to fear. It tempts us not to trust that God is in control, even that God can raise us. And these temptations... We can give in to them. We can can take the bait and walk away. So we pray that God would protect us, deliver us, fight against these enemies for us, and he has. This is what Christ came to do. 
He didn't come to fight against worldly enemies like Rome at his time, but Midian or Amalek, for example, from this text, he came to fight against sin, death, and the devil. He knew if he saved us from Rome, there would just be another Rome called by a different name. There will always be somebody in this broken world who fights against, oppresses that which God calls good. For ultimately, that is the devil's aim, to destroy everything God has made. Jesus has defeated them. Christ has conquered them by his death on the cross and by his resurrection on Easter morning. They're defeated. They're done. Jesus said, it is finished on the cross. God the Father echoes him in Revelation chapter 16 as he says of the battle of Armageddon, it is done. Both of those are one word in Greek, although not the same Greek word. It would be really nice if they were, but close, very close. The other question I have in my notes to ask as a family and talk about is really right off the first sentence. Oh God, do not keep silence. What would happen to us if he did? What would happen if God kept silent? And in order to figure that one out, you have to talk first about what does it mean for God to speak. And this is one of the beautiful things about the Lord is that he speaks and and things happen. He spoke and creation happened, right? He speaks creation into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light and there was light. That's how he made everything with the exception of Adam, whom he formed from the dust of the earth that he had already made. And then Eve from Adam. Today, Jesus upholds the entire universe by the word of his power from Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. The fact that the sun is still there, doing its thing, that this earth continues to stay in its orbit around it, that you and I draw breath, however big scale or little scale you want to take that statement of Hebrews, Jesus upholds the entire universe by his word. And it is by his word that he creates faith in the hearts of sinners like you and me. So if God stops speaking, everything ends, with the exception of God himself. It would be disaster for us. So yes, good prayer. God, do not keep silent. Now, in Asaph's mind, in his purposes of this prayer, that is a call for God to fight. Silent, still, at peace. Your people are not. Your people are afflicted. Come and deliver them. So, God may seem silent to Asaph in the moment, but the enemies are making an uproar. They're making noise, so God respond. That's the kind of idea he's got going on there. So then, we have the enemies raising their heads. I get this picture in my mind of like the little rodents that, different types of like meerkats or moles or things like that that'll poke their little heads up out of the ground and look around to see if the coast is clear before they act. The enemies are looking around. They don't see a threat, so they're coming against God's people. They're fighting against them. And that's what most of the next few verses are about. Crafty plans, consulting together, let us wipe them out, conspiring with one accord. Lots of ways to say the same thing. These enemies of God's people seek to destroy God's people. 
his treasured ones. It's a reference to the holy people, the nation of Israel. They are called treasured possession of God five times in the Old Testament. And then we get the verse in the New Testament, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. From 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we are God's treasured possession today that Jesus has redeemed by his own most precious blood and for his sake forgives us of all of our sins. Now we get a list of some of the enemies that are seeking to destroy God's people here. We have the tents of Edom. Edom are the descendants of Esau, brother of Jacob. They live just south of the Salt Sea, bordering it. Dead Sea, if you want to call it that by today's map. The Ishmaelites, those are the children of Ishmael, son of Abraham by Hagar, the Egyptian. They settled mostly towards the east into Arabia. Moab. These are going to be the descendants of Lot by one of his daughters, Ammon. And the next verse is the descendants of Lot by the other. Moab is to the southeastern side of the Salt Sea, and Ammon is really kind of to the northeastern side of the Salt Sea. So you've got those three groups in a row as you go up around the, I guess, counterclockwise around the Salt Sea from the bottom. It would be Edom, Moab, Ammon. Then mentioned also in verse 6, the Hagrites, they, they live east of Gilead, so they're east of the Jordan River. Then you have Gebal. And that seems to be reference to a city 150 miles north of the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Canareth in Old Testament days. Not mentioned very often, uh, but it's a port city on the Mediterranean Sea. It shows up five other times in Scripture. And then we get Amalek, which is a southern enemy. So if you've got Israel on the map just on their southern edge before you would even get to Edom, you would have the Amalekites. And then to the southwest, bordering the Mediterranean Sea, you would have the Philistians, Philistia. And also the inhabitants of Tyre. Tyre is a port city on the Mediterranean Sea, roughly a hundred miles north, northwest of Jerusalem. And lastly, in verse 8 is mentioned Ashur, which is another name in the Old Testament for Assyria, the major world power around this time, at least in the years to come, until Babylon defeats them in the late 7th century. I think that's the right way to phrase it, around 605 B.C. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot, which is a reference to Moab and Ammon that we've mentioned before. They've basically allied themselves with this other world power, this enemy, and brought them in to help them conquer and destroy. So Israel, the northern kingdom, will have battle with with these groups. I mean, already King David's doing that, battling primarily with the Philistines, but others as well. That will continue really all the way until Assyria destroys the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C., so it's hard to say what year this is Asaph is praying this. It certainly certainly seems to be early in Israel's history as a nation that already has a king. So David's already put Asaph in place as one of the court singers. And again, Babylon hasn't risen to power. Assyria still has that. But then the prayer 
takes off in a different direction as Asaph prays God to defeat them and brings up examples of how God has done that in the past. If you want, read Judges chapters 4 through 8 together as a family and you'll get the context for verses 9 through 12. In Judges chapter 4 and 5 is where you will see Sisera and Jabin. So Jabin is a Canaanite king living to the north in a place called Hazor, and Sisera is his general. What is remembered best about Sisera among Christians is that Jael, a woman, lures him into her tent, and then as he sleeps peacefully there, she takes a tent peg and drives it through his head. Sisera was on the run. The God's army had routed them and driven them off, and they gave chase. They were destroyed at Endor, which is about 10 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, or again, Sea of Canareth for the Old Testament map. Then you have Judges 7 and 8. Do to them as you did to Midian. The Midianites fought against God's people, and the Lord raised up a man named Gideon. Gideon against Midian. Anyway, Gideon is going to get together his army. God sends most of them home because it would show his power, his saving work. And they. this is the one where they come with 300 soldiers to fight against 135,000 Midianites, and they win without casualty because God fights for his people. So that's verse 11 as well. Oreb and Zeb, Zeba and Zalmanah are the leaders of that group that they defeat who boastfully tried to take God's people. So you really have a sandwich technique there. Judges 7 and 8, Gideon with Midian, uh, kind of as the bread in verse 9 and 11, with 9b and 10 in the middle as chapters 4 and 5, which is the accounts of Deborah and Barak. Deborah serving as the judge because Barak was a coward and refused to do it. And he wouldn't even go into battle unless Deborah went with him. And so she she scolds him for that. And that's why Jael ends up getting the glory of being the one who takes takes out the enemy's commander instead of Barak. Anyway, verse 13. My God, make them like whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. Simply put, things that blow away. Things that might be there right now, but a little dust of wind and they're gone. The dust of the earth blown away or... In the case of the chaff, it's the the worthless part, the shell that was on the grain. And as the farmer has beat it on the threshing floor, the wind carries the the really light, flaky chaff shell, just blows it right away, and it's gone, lost. Do this to your enemies. As fire consumes the forest. That's a picture most Americans are familiar with, as the land in which we live does suffer from forest fires quite a bit both in the west and in the east. A flame that sets the mountain ablaze. Yeah, even even the same thing there with forest fires, as mountains can be covered with trees as well. May you pursue them with your tempest, terrify them with your hurricane. These things, pictures of God's ability to use creation to fight for him. But the last couple verses here, basically the idea of of call them to repent or make them perish. In fact, already start leading them to destruction so that they might repent it, but if they don't, finish the job. Fill their faces with shame, so they've lost. They've been defeated in battle, they're fleeing. 
that they may learn to seek your name, O Yahweh, that they might repent, that they might trust in you as God above all kings. Put the shame and dismayed forever, perishing in disgrace. So if they don't seek your name, if they don't repent, may they perish forever. That is, as we know, a reference to hell. That they may know you alone, whose name is Yahweh. You are most high over all the earth. So whether they repent and live, or don't repent and perish, this is Philippians 2. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. On the last day, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will be too late for those who have spent their entire lives rejecting him and died in that rejection. They will be raised on the last day unto judgment, but they will bow the knee that day because they will see the true king whom they have rejected all that time. So a bit of a both and here at the end, but it's primarily here a prayer for God to save his people from their enemy.